0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chekris, London, UK. The Triumphs of Eugene Valmont, by Robert Barr. Chapter Seven: The Liberation of Wyoming Ed. A man should present the whole truth to his doctor, his lawyer, or his detective. If a doctor is to cure, he must be given the full confidence of the patient. If a lawyer is to win a case, he needs to know what tells against his client, as well as the points in his favour. If a secret agent is to solve a mystery, all the cards should be put on the table. Those who half-trust a professional man need not be disappointed when results prove unsatisfactory. A partial confidence reposed in me led to the liberation of a dangerous criminal— caused me to associate with a robber, much against my own inclination, and brought me within danger of the law. Of course I never pretend to possess that absolute confidence in the law which seems to be the birthright of every Englishman. I have lived too intimately among the machinery of the law, and have seen too many of its ghastly mistakes to hold it in that blind esteem which appears to be prevalent in the British Isles. There is a doggerel couplet which typifies this spirit, better than anything I can write, and it runs, No rogue e'er felt the halter draw with a good opinion of the law. Those lines exemplify the trend of British thought in this direction. If you question a verdict of their courts, you are a rogue, and that ends the matter. And yet, when an Englishman undertakes to circumvent the law, there is no other man on earth who will go to greater lengths. "'an amazing people, never understandable by the sane of other countries. "'It was entirely my own fault that I became involved in affairs "'which were almost indefensible and wholly illegal. "'My client first tried to bribe me into compliance with his wishes, "'which bribe I sternly refused. "'Then he partially broke down, and quite unconsciously, as I take it, "'made an appeal to the heart, a strange thing for an Englishman to do.' My kind heart has ever been my most vulnerable point. We French are sentimentalists. France has before now staked its very existence for an ideal, while other countries fight for continents, cash, or commerce. You cannot pierce me with a lance of gold, but wave a wand of sympathy, and I am yours. There waited for me in my flat a man who gave his name as Douglas Sanderson, which may or may not have been his legitimate title. This was a question into which I never probed, and at the moment of writing am as ignorant of his true cognomen, if that was not it, as on the morning he first met me. He was an elderly man of natural dignity and sobriety, slow in speech, almost sombre in dress. His costume was not quite that of a professional man, and not quite that of a gentleman. I at once recognised the order to which he belonged— and a most difficult class it is to deal with. He was the confidential servant or steward of some ancient and probably noble family, embodying in himself all the faults and virtues, each a trifle accentuated, of the line he served, and to which, in order to produce him and his like, his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather had doubtless been attached. It is frequently the case that the honour of the house he serves is more dear to him it is to the representative of that house. Such a man is almost always the repository of family secrets, a repository whose inviolability gold cannot affect, threats sway, or cajolery influence. I knew when I looked at him that practically I was looking at his master, for I have known many cases where even the personal appearance of the two was almost identical, which may have given rise to the English phrase, like master, like man. The servant was a little more haughty, a little less kind, a little more exclusive, a little less confidential, a little more condescending, a little less human, a little more Tory, and altogether a little less pleasant and easy person to deal with. "'Sir,' he began, when I had waved him to a seat, "'I am a very rich man, and can afford to pay well for the commission I request you to undertake.' To ask you to name your own terms may seem unbusinesslike, so I may say at the outset I am not a business man. The service I shall ask will involve the utmost secrecy, and for that I am willing to pay. It may expose you to risk of limb or liberty, and for that I am willing to pay. It will probably necessitate the expenditure of a large sum of money. That sum is at your disposal. Here he paused, He had spoken slowly and impressively, with a touch of arrogance in his tone, which aroused to his prejudice the combativeness latent in my nature. However, at this juncture I merely bowed my head, and replied, in accents almost as supercilious as his own,—'The task must either be unworthy or unwelcome. In mentioning first the compensation, you are inverting the natural order of things.' "'You should state at the outset what you expect me to do. "'Then, if I accept the commission, "'it is time to discuss the details of expenditure.' "'Either he had not looked for such a reply, "'or was loath to open his budget, "'for he remained a few moments with eyes bent upon the floor "'and lips compressed in silence. "'At last he went on, without change of inflection, "'without any diminution of that air of condescension "'which had so exasperated me in the beginning.' and which was preparing a downfall for himself that would rudely shake the cold dignity which encompassed him like a cloak. It is difficult for a father to confide in a complete stranger the vagaries of a beloved son, and before doing so you must pledge your word that my communication will be regarded as strictly confidential. cela va sans dire. I do not understand French, said Mr. Sanderson severely, as if the use of the phrase were an insult to him. "'I replied nonchalantly. "'It means, as a matter of course, that goes without saying. "'Whatever you care to tell me about your son will be mentioned to no one. "'Pray proceed without further circumlocution, for my time is valuable.' "'My son was always a little wild and impatient of control. "'Although everything he could wish was at his disposal here at home, "'he chose to visit America, where he fell into bad company.' "'I assure you there is no real harm in the boy, "'but he became implicated with others "'and has suffered severely for his recklessness. "'For five years he has been an inmate of a prison in the West. "'He was known and convicted under the name of Wyoming Ed. "'What was his crime? "'His alleged crime was the stopping and robbing of a railway train. "'For how long was he sentenced? "'He was sentenced for life.' What do you wish me to do? Every appeal has been made to the Governor of the State in an endeavour to obtain a pardon. These appeals have failed. I am informed that if money enough is expended it may be possible to arrange my son's escape. In other words, you wish me to bribe the officials of the jail? I assure you the lad is innocent. For the first time a quiver of human emotion came into the old man's voice. Then, if you can prove that— "'Why not apply for a new trial?' "'Unfortunately the circumstances of the case, "'of his arrest on the train itself, "'the number of witnesses against him, "'give me no hope that a new trial "'would end in a different verdict, "'even if a new trial could be obtained, "'which I am informed is not possible. "'Every legal means tending to his liberation "'has already been tried.' "'I see. "'And now you are determined to adopt illegal means.' I refuse to have anything to do with the malpractice you propose. You objected to a phrase in French, Mr. Sanderson. Perhaps one in Latin will please you better. It is Veritas prevalibit, which means Truth Will Prevail. I shall set your mind entirely at rest regarding your son. Your son at this moment occupies a humble, if honourable, position in the great house from which you came, "'and he hopes in time worthily to fill his father's shoes, "'as you have filled the shoes of your father. "'You are not a rich man, but a servant. "'Your son never was in America, and never will go there. "'It is your master's son, the heir to great English estates, "'who became the Wyoming head of the Western prison. "'Even from what you say, I do not in the least doubt he was justly convicted, "'and you may go back to your master and tell him so.' You came here to conceal the shameful secret of a wealthy and noble house. You may return knowing that secret has been revealed, and that the circumstances in which you so solemnly bound me to secrecy never existed. Sir, that is the penalty of lying. The old man's contempt for me had been something to be felt, so palpable was it. The armour of icy reserve had been so complete that actually I had expected to see him rise with undiminished hauteur and leave the room disdaining further parley with one who had insulted him. Doubtless that is the way in which his master would have acted. But even in the underling I was unprepared for the instantaneous crumbling of this monument of pomp and pride. A few moments after I began to speak in terms as severe as his own, His trembling hands grasped the arms of the chair in which he sat, and his ever-widening eyes, which came to regard me with something like superstitious dread as I went on, showed me I had launched my random arrow straight at the bull's eye of fact. His face grew mottled and green rather than pale. When at last I accused him of lying, he arose slowly, shaking like a man with a palsy, "'but, unable to support himself erect, sank helplessly back into his chair again. "'His head fell forward to the table before him, and he sobbed aloud. "'God help me!' he cried. "'It is not my own secret I am trying to guard.' "'I sprang to the door, and turned the key in the lock, "'so that by no chance might we be interrupted. "'Then, going to the sideboard, I poured him out a liqueur-glass full of the finest cognac "'ever imported from south of the Loire, "'and tapping him on the shoulder said brusquely, "'Here, drink this. "'The case is no worse than it was half an hour ago. "'I shall not betray the secret.' "'He tossed off the brandy, "'and with some effort regained his self-control. "'I have done my errand badly,' he wailed. "'I don't know what I have said "'that has led you to so accurate a statement of the real situation, "'but I have been a blundering fool. "'God forgive me.' "'when so much depended on my making no mistake. "'Don't let that trouble you,' I replied. "'Nothing you said gave me the slightest clue.' "'You called me a liar,' he continued. "'And that is a hard word from one man to another. "'But I would not lie for myself, "'and when I do it for one I revere and respect, "'my only regret is that I have done it without avail.' "'My dear sir,' I assured him, "'the fault is not with yourself at all.' "'You were simply attempting the impossible. "'Stripped and bare, your proposal amounts to this. "'I am to betake myself to the United States, "'and there commit a crime, or a series of crimes, "'in bribing sworn officials to turn traitor to their duty "'and permit a convict to escape. "'You put it very harshly, sir. "'You must admit that, especially in new countries, "'there is lawlessness within the law as well as outside of it, The real criminals in the robbery of the railway-train escaped. My young master, poor fellow, was caught. His father, one of the proudest men in England, has grown prematurely old under the burden of this terrible dishonour. He is broken-hearted and a dying man, yet he presents an impassive front to the world with all the ancient courage of his race. My young master is an only son, and failing his appearance, should his father die, title and estate will pass to strangers. Our helplessness in this situation adds to its horror. We dare not make any public move. My old master is one with such influence among the governing class of this country, of which he has long been a member, that the average Englishman, if his name were mentioned, would think his power limitless. Yet that power he dare not exert to save his own son from a felon's life and death. However much he or another may suffer, publicity must be avoided, and this is a secret which cannot safely be shared with more than those who know it now. How many know it? In this country, three persons. In an American prison, one. Have you kept up communication with the young man? Oh, yes. Direct? No, through a third person. My young master has implored his father not to write to him direct. "'This go-between, as we may call him, is the third person in the secret. "'Who is he?' "'That I dare not tell you. "'Mr. Sanderson, it would be much better for your master and his son "'that you should be more open with me. "'These half-confidences are misleading. "'Has the son made any suggestion regarding his release?' "'Oh, yes, but not the suggestion I have put before you. "'His latest letter was to the effect that within six months or so "'there is to be an election for governor.' He proposes that a large sum of money shall be used to influence this election, so that a man pledged to pardon him may sit in the governor's chair. I see. And this sum of money is to be paid to the third person you referred to? Yes. May I take it that this third person is the one to whom various sums have been paid during the last five years, in order to bribe the governor to pardon the young man? Sanderson hesitated a moment before answering. In fact he appeared so torn between inclination and duty, anxious to give me whatever information I deemed necessary, yet hemmed in by the instructions with which his master had limited him, that at last I waved my hand, and said, "'You need not reply, Mr. Sanderson. "'That third party is the crux of the situation. "'I strongly suspect him of blackmail. "'If you would but name him, and allow me to lure him to these rooms,' I possess a little private prison of my own into which I could thrust him, and I venture to say that before he had passed a week in darkness on bread and water we should have the truth about this business. Look you now the illogical nature of an Englishman. Poor old Sanderson, who had come to me with a proposal to break the law of America, seemed horror-stricken when I airily suggested the immuring of a man in a dungeon here in England. He gazed at me in amazement— "'then cast his eyes furtively about him, "'as if afraid a trap-door would drop beneath him "'and land him in my private oubliette.' "'Do not be alarmed, Mr. Sanderson. "'You are perfectly safe. "'You are beginning at the wrong end of this business. "'And it seems to me five years of contributions "'to this third party without any result "'might have opened the eyes "'of even the most influential nobleman in England, "'not to mention those of his faithful servant.' "'Indeed, sir,' said Sanderson, I must confess to you that I have long had a suspicion of this third person, but my master has clung to him as his only hope, and if this third person were interfered with, I may tell you that he has deposited in London at some place unknown to us a full history of the case, and if it should happen that he disappears for more than a week at a time, this record will be brought to light. My dear Mr. Sanderson, that device is as old as Noah and his Ark. I should chance that. Let me lay this fellow by the heels, and I will guarantee that no publicity follows. Sanderson sadly shook his head. Everything might happen as you say, sir, but all that would put us no further forward. The only point is the liberation of my young master. It is possible that the person unmentioned, whom we may call number three, has been cheating us throughout, but that is a matter of no consequence. Pardon me, but I think it is— "'Suppose your young master here and at liberty. "'This number three would continue to maintain the power over him "'which he seems to have held over his father for the last five years. "'I think we can prevent that, sir, if my plan is carried out. "'The scheme for bribing the American officials is yours, then?' Uh, "'Yes, sir, and I may say I am taking a great deal upon myself in coming to you. "'I am, in fact, disobeying the implied commands of my master.' "'but I have seen him pay money and very large sums of money to this number three "'for the last five years, and nothing has come of it. "'My master is an unsuspicious man, who has seen little of the real world, "'and thinks every one as honest as himself. "'Well, that may be, Mr Sanderson, but permit me to suggest that the one "'who proposes a scheme of bribery, and, to put it mildly, an evasion of the law, "'shows some knowledge of the lower levels of this world.' and is not quite in a position to plume himself on his own honesty. I am coming to that, Mr. Valmont. My master knows nothing whatever of my plan. He has given me the huge sum of money demanded by number three, and he supposes that amount has been already paid over. As a matter of fact it has not been paid over, and will not be until my suggestion has been carried out and failed. In fact, I am about to use this money, all of it if necessary, if you will undertake the commission. I have paid No. 3 his usual monthly allowance, and will continue to do so. I have told him my master has his proposal under consideration, that there are still six months to come and go upon, and that my master is not one who decides in a hurry. Number 3 says there is an election in six months for governor. What is the name of the state? Sanderson informed me. I walked to my bookcase and took down a current American yearbook, consulted it and returned to the table. There is no election in that state, Mr. Sanderson, for eighteen months. Number three is simply a blackmailer, as I have suspected. Quite so, sir, replied Sanderson, taking a newspaper from his pocket. I read in this paper an account of a man immured in a Spanish dungeon. His friends arranged it with the officials in this way. "'the prisoner was certified to have died, and his body was turned over to his relatives. "'Now if that could be done in America, it would serve two purposes. "'It would be the easiest way to get my young master out of the jail. "'It would remain a matter of record that he had died. "'Therefore there could be no search for him, as would be the case if he simply escaped. "'If you were so good as to undertake this task, you might perhaps see my young master in his cell, and ask him to write to this number three with whom he is in constant communication telling him he was very ill then you could arrange with the prison doctor that this person was informed of my young master's death very well we can try that but a blackmailer is not so easily thrown off the scent once he has tasted blood he is a human man-eating tiger but still there is always my private dungeon in the background and if your plan for silencing him fails, I guarantee that my more drastic and equally illegal method will be a success. It will be seen that my scruples concerning the acceptance of this commission, and my first dislike for the old man, had both faded away during the conversation which I have set down in the preceding chapter. I saw him under the stress of deep emotion, and latterly began to realise the tremendous chances he was taking in contravening the will of his imperious master. If the large sum of money was long withheld from the blackmailer, Douglas Sanderson ran the risk of number 3 opening communication direct with his master. Investigation would show that the old servant had come perilously near laying himself open to a charge of breach of trust, and even of defalcation with regard to the money and all this danger he was heroically incurring for the unselfish purpose of serving the interests of his employer. During our long interview, old Sanderson gradually became a hero in my eyes, and entirely in opposition to the resolution I had made at the beginning, I accepted his commission at the end of it. Nevertheless, my American experiences are those of which I am least proud— and all I care to say upon the subject is that my expedition proved completely successful. The late convict was my companion on the Arontic, the first steamship sailing for England after we reached New York from the west. Of course I knew that two or three years roughing it in mining camps and on ranches, followed by five years in prison, must have produced a radical effect not only on the character, but also in the personal appearance of a man— had undergone these privations. Nevertheless, making due allowance for all this, I could not but fear that the ancient English family of which this young man was the hope and pride would be exceedingly disappointed with him. In spite of the change which grooming and the wearing of a civilised costume made, Wyoming Ed still looked much more the criminal than the gentleman. I considered myself in honour-bound, not to make any inquiries of the young man regarding his parentage. Of course, if I had wished to possess myself of the secret, I had but to touch a button under the table when Sanderson left my rooms in the Imperial Flats, which would have caused him to be shadowed and run to earth. I may also add that the ex-prisoner volunteered no particulars about himself or his family. Only once on board ship did he attempt to obtain some information from me, "'as we walked up and down the deck together. "'You're acting for someone else, I suppose?' he said. "'Yes.' "'For someone in England?' "'Yes.' "'He put up the money, did he?' "'Yes.' "'There was a pause, during which we took two or three turns in silence. "'Of course there's no secret about it,' he said at last. "'I expected help from the other side, "'but Colonel Jim has been so mighty long about it "'I was afraid he'd forgotten me.' "'Who is Colonel Jim?' "'Colonel Jim Baxter. Wasn't it him gave you the money?' "'I never heard of the man before.' "'Then who put up the coin?' "'Douglas Sanderson,' I replied, looking at him sideways as I mentioned the name. It had apparently no effect upon him. He wrinkled his brow for a moment, and then said, "'Well, if you never heard of Baxter, I never heard of Sanderson.' This led me to suspect that Douglas Sanderson did not give me his own name, and doubtless the address with which he had furnished me was merely temporary. I did not cable to him from America regarding the success of the expedition, because I could not be certain it was a success until I was safely on English ground, and not even then to tell the truth. Anyhow, I wished to leave no trail behind me, but the moment the Arontic reached Liverpool— "'I telegraphed Sanderson to meet us that evening at my flat. "'He was waiting for me when Wyoming Ed and I entered together. "'The old man was quite evidently in a state of nervous tension. "'He had been walking up and down the room with hands clenched behind his back, "'and now stood at the end farthest from the door as he heard us approach, "'with his hands still clasped behind his back, "'and an expression of deep anxiety upon his rugged face.' "'All the electric lamps were turned on, and the room was bright as day. "'Have you not brought him with you?' he cried. "'Brought him with me?' I echoed. "'Here is Wyoming Ed.' "'The old man glared at him for a moment or two, stupefied, and then moaned, "'Oh, my God, my God, that is not the man!' "'I turned to my short-haired fellow-traveller. "'You told me you were Wyoming Ed.' He laughed uneasily. "'Well, uh, in a manner of speaking, so I have been for the last five years. Uh, But I wasn't Wyoming Ed before that. "'Say, old man, are you acting for Colonel Jim Baxter?' Sanderson, on whom a dozen years seemed to have fallen since we entered the room, appeared unable to speak, and merely shook his head in a hopeless sort of way." "'I say, boys,' ejaculated the ex-convict, with an uneasy laugh, half-comic, half-bewildered, "'this is a sort of mix-up, isn't it? I wish Colonel Jim was here to explain. "'I say, boss,' he cried suddenly, turning sharp on me, "'this here misfit's not my fault. I didn't change the children in the cradle. You don't intend to send me back to that hell hellhole, do you?' "'No,' I said, "'not if you tell the truth. Sit down.' The late prisoner seated himself in a chair as close to the door as possible, hitching a little nearer as he sat down. His face had taken on a sharp, crafty aspect like that of a trapped rat. "'You're perfectly safe,' I assured him. "'Sit over here by the table. Even if you bolted through that door you couldn't get out of this flat. "'Mr. Sanderson, take a chair.' The old man sank despondently into the one nearest at hand. I pressed a button— "'And when my servant entered, I said to him, "'Bring some cognac and Scotch whisky, "'glasses and two siphons of soda. "'You haven't got any Kentucky or Canadian?' "'asked the prisoner, moistening his lips. "'The jail whiteness in his face was now accentuated by the pallor of fear, "'and the haunted look of the escaped convict glimmered in his eyes. "'In spite of the comfort I had attempted to bestow upon him, "'he knew that he had been rescued in mistake for another,' and for the first time since he left prison realised he was among strangers, and not among friends. In his trouble he turned to the beverage of his native continent. "'Bring a bottle of Canadian whisky,' I said to the servant, who disappeared and shortly returned with what I had ordered. I locked the door after him and put the key in my pocket. "'What am I to call you?' I asked the ex-convict. With a forced laugh he said, "Uh, "'You can call me Jack, for short.' "'Very well, Jack, help yourself.' And he poured out a very liberal glass of the Dominion liquor, refusing to dilute it with soda. Sanderson took scotch, and I helped myself to a petit verre of brandy. "'Now, Jack, I began, I may tell you plainly that if I wished to send you back to prison, I could not do so without incriminating myself. "'You are legally dead.' "'and you have now a chance to begin life anew, "'an opportunity of which I hope you will take advantage. "'If you were to apply three weeks from to-day at the prison doors, "'they would not dare admit you. "'You are dead. "'Does that console you?' "'Well, squire, you can bet your button dollar "'I never thought I'd be pleased to hear I was dead, "'but I'm glad if it's all fixed, as you say, "'and you can bet your last pair of boots "'I'm going to keep out of the jug in future, if I can.' "'That's right. "'Now I can promise that if you answer all my questions truthfully, "'you shall be given money enough to afford you a new beginning in life.' "'Good enough,' said Jack, briefly. "'You were known in prison as Wyoming Ed. "'Yes, sir. "'If that was not your name, why did you use it?' "'Because Colonel Jim, on the train, asked me to do that. "'He said it would give him a pull in England to get me free.' "'Did you know Wyoming Ed?' "'Yes, sir.' "'He was one of us three that held up the train. "'What became of him? "'He was shot dead. "'By one of the passengers?' "'There was silence, during which the old man groaned and bowed his head. "'Jack was studying the floor. "'Then he looked up at me and said, "'You don't expect me to give a pal away, do you?' "'As that pal has given you away for the last five years, "'it seems to me you need not show very much consideration for him.' "'I'm not so sure he did. "'I am, but never mind that point. "'Colonel Jim Baxter shot Wyoming Ed and killed him. "'Why? "'See here, my friend, you're going a little too fast. "'I didn't say that.' "'He reached somewhat defiantly for the bottle from Canada. "'Pardon me,' I said, rising quietly and taking possession of the bottle myself. "'It grieves me more than I can say to restrict my hospitality.' "'I have never done such a thing in my life before, but this is not a drinking bout. "'It is a very serious conference. "'The whisky you have already taken has given you a bogus courage, and a false view of things. "'Are you going to tell me the truth, or are you not?' "'Jack pondered on this for a while, and then he said, "'Well, sir, I am perfectly willing to tell you the truth as far as it concerns myself, "'but I don't want to rat on a friend.' "'As I have said, he isn't your friend.' "'He told you to take the name of Wyoming Ed "'so that he might blackmail the father of Wyoming Ed. "'He has done so for the last five years, "'living in luxury here in London "'and not moving a finger to help you. "'In fact, nothing would appall him more "'than to learn that you are now in this country. "'By this time he has probably received the news "'from the prison doctor that you are dead "'and so thinks himself safe for ever.' "'If you can prove that to me,' said Jack, "'I can and will,' I interrupted. "'Then, turning to Sanderson, I demanded, "'When are you to meet this man next?' "'To-night, at nine o'clock,' he answered. "'His monthly payment is due, and he is clamouring for the large sum I told you of.' "'Where do you meet him? In London?' "'Yes.' "'At your master's town-house?' "'Yes.' "'Will you take us there, and places where we can see him and he can't see us?' "'Yes, I trust to your honour, Mr. Valmont. "'A closed carriage will call for me at eight, and you can accompany me. "'Still, after all, Mr. Valmont, "'we have no assurance that he is the same person this young man refers to.' "'I am certain he is. "'He does not go under the name of Colonel Jim Baxter, I suppose?' "'No. "'The convict had been looking from one to the other of us during this colloquy. "'Suddenly he drew his chair up closer to the table.' "'Look here,' he said, "'you fellows are square, I can see that, "'and after all's said and done, "'you're the man that got me out of clink. "'Now, I have suspicion you're right about Colonel Jim, "'but anyhow, I'll tell you exactly what happened. "'Colonel Jim was a Britisher, "'and I suppose that's why he and Wyoming Ed "'chummed together a good deal. "'We called Jim Baxter Colonel, "'but he never said he was a colonel or anything else.' I was told he belonged to the British Army, and that something happened in India, so that he had to light out. He never talked about himself, but he was a mighty taking fellow when he laid out to please anybody. We called him Colonel because he was so straight in the back, and walked as if he were on parade. When this young English Tenderfoot came out, he and the Colonel got to be as thick as thieves, and the Colonel won a good deal of money from him at cards, but that didn't make any difference in their friendship. "'The Colonel almost always won when he played cards, "'and perhaps that's what started the talk "'about why he left the British Army. "'He was the luckiest beggar I ever knew "'in that line of business. "'We all met in the rush to the new goldfields, "'which didn't pan out worth a cent, "'and one after another of the fellows quit "'and went somewhere else. "'But Wyoming Ed, he held on, "'even after Colonel Jim wanted to quit. "'As long as there were plenty of fellows there, "'Colonel Jim never lacked money.' "'although he didn't dig it out of the ground. "'But when the population thinned down to only a few of us, "'then we all struck hard times. "'Now I knew Colonel Jim was going to hold up a train. "'He asked me if I'd join him, "'and I said I would if there wasn't too many in the gang. "'I'd been into that business afore, "'and I knew there was no greater danger "'than to have a whole mob of fellows. Three men can hold up a train better than three dozen. "'Everybody's scared except the express messenger,' "'and it's generally easy to settle him, "'for he stands where the light is, "'and we shoot from the dark. "'Well, I thought at first "'Wyoming Ed was on to the scheme, "'because when we were waiting in the cut "'to signal the train, "'he talked about us going on with her "'to San Francisco. "'For I thought he was only joking. "'I guess that Colonel Jim imagined "'that when he came to the pinch, "'Ed wouldn't back out and leave us in the lurch. "'He knew Ed was as brave as a lion. "'In the cut, "'where the train would be on the upgrade, "'the Colonel got his lantern ready, "'lit it, and wrapped a thin red silk handkerchief round it. "'The express was timed to pass up there about midnight, "'but it was near one o'clock when a headlight came in sight. "'We knew all the passengers would be in bed in the sleepers, "'and asleep in the smoking-car and the day-coach. "'We didn't intend to meddle with them. "'The Colonel had brought a stick or two of dynamite from the mines, "'and was going to blow open the safe in the express-car,' "'and climb out with whatever was inside. "'The train stopped to the signal all right, "'and the colonel fired a couple of shots "'just to let the engineer know we meant business. "'The engineer and fireman at once threw up their hands, "'and then the colonel turns to Ed, "'who was standing there like a man pole-axed, "'and says to him, mighty sharp, "'just like as if he was speaking to a regiment of soldiers, "'You keep these two men covered. "'Come on, Jack,' he says to me, "'and then we steps up to the door of the express car "'which the fellow inside had got locked and bolted. "'The Colonel fires his revolver in through the lock, "'then flung his shoulder agin the door, "'and it went in with a crash, "'which was followed instantly by another crash, "'for the little expressman was game right through. "'He'd put out the lights and was blazing away at the open door. "'The Colonel sprang for cover inside the car and wasn't touched, "'but one of the shots took me just above the knee and broke my leg.' "'so I went down in a heap. "'The minute the Colonel counted seven shots, "'he was on to that express messenger like a tiger "'and had him tied up in a hard knot "'before he could shake a stick. "'Then, quick as a wink, he struck a match "'and lit the lamp. "'Plucky as the express messenger was, "'he looked scared to death. "'And now when Colonel Jim held a pistol to his head, "'he gave up the keys and told him how to open the safe. "'I had fallen back against the corner of the car inside "'and was groaning with pain.' "'Colonel Jim was scooping out the money from the shelves of the safe "'and stuffing it into a sack. "'Are you hurt, Jack?' he cried. "'Yeah, my legs broke. "'Don't let that trouble you. We'll get you clear all right. "'Do you think you can ride your horse?' "'I don't believe it,' I said. "'I guess I'm done for. And I thought I was.' "'Colonel Jim never looked round, "'but he went through that safe in a way that'd make your hair curl, "'throwing aside the bulky packages after tearing them open.' "'taking only cash, which he thrust into a bag he had with him, "'till he was loaded like a millionaire. "'Then suddenly he swore for the train began to move. "'What's that fool Ed doing?' he shouted, rising to his feet. "'At that minute Ed came in, pistol in each hand, and his face ablaze. "'Here, you cursed thief!' he cried. "'I didn't come with you to rob a train.' "'Get outside, you fool,' roared Colonel Jim. "'Get outside and stop this train. Jack's got his leg broke.' "'Don't come another step toward me, or I'll kill you.' "'But Ed, he walked right on, Colonel Jim backing. "'Then there was a shot that rang like cannon-fire in the closed car, "'and Ed fell forward on his face. "'Colonel Jim turned him over, "'and I saw he'd been hit square in the middle of the forehead. "'The train was now going at good speed, "'and we were already miles away from where our horses were tied. "'I never heard a man swear like Colonel Jim. "'He went through the pockets of Ed.' "'and took a bundle of papers that was inside his coat, "'and this he stuffed away in his own clothes. "'Then he turned to me, and his voice was like a lamb. "'Jack, old man,' he said, "'I can't help you. "'They're going to nab you, but not for murder. "'The express man there will be your witness. "'It isn't murder anyhow on my part, but self-defence. "'You saw he was coming at me when I warned him to keep away.' "'All this he said in a loud voice for the express man to hear, "'and then he bent over to me and whispered, "'I'll get the best lawyer I can for you. but I'm afraid they're bound to convict you, "'and if they do, I'll spend every penny of this money to get you free. "'You call yourself Wyoming Ed at the trial. "'I have taken all this man's papers so that he can't be identified. "'And don't you worry if you're sentenced, "'for remember I'll be working night and day for you. "'And if money can get you out, you'll be got out, "'because these papers will help me to get the cash required.' "'Ed's folks are rich in England, "'so they'll fork over to get you out if you pretend to be him.' "'With that he bade me good-bye and jumped off the train. "'There, gentlemen, that's the whole story, just as it happened, "'and that's why I thought it was Colonel Jim had sent you to get me free.' "'There was not the slightest doubt in my mind "'that the convict had told the exact truth, "'and that night at nine o'clock he identified Major Wren "'as the former Colonel Jim Baxter.' Sanderson placed us in a gallery where we could see, but could not hear. The old man seemed determined that we should not know where we were, and took every precaution to keep us in the dark. I suppose he put us out of earshot, so that if the Major mentioned the name of the nobleman we should not be any the wiser. We remained in the gallery for some time after the Major had left, before Sanderson came to us again, carrying with him a packet. The carriage is waiting at the door, he said, and— with your permission, Monsieur Valmont, I will accompany you to your flat. I smiled at the old man's extreme caution, but he continued very gravely. It's not that, Monsieur Valmont. I wish to consult with you, and if you will accept it, I have another commission to offer. Well, said I, I hope it's not so unsavoury as the last, but to this the old man made no response. There was silence in the carriage as we drove back to my flat. Sanderson had taken the precaution of pulling down the blinds of the carriage, which he need not have troubled to do, for, as I have said, it would have been the simplest matter in the world for me to have discovered who his employer was, if I had desired to know. As a matter of fact, I do not know to this day whom he represented. Once more in my room, with the electric light turned on, I was shocked and astonished to see the expression on Sanderson's face. It was the face of a man who would grimly commit murder and hang for it. "'If ever the thirst for vengeance was portrayed on a human countenance, "'it was on his that night. "'He spoke very quietly, laying down the packet before him on the table. "'I think you will agree with me,' he said, "'that no punishment on earth is too severe for that creature calling himself Major Wren. "'I'm willing to shoot him dead in the streets of London to-morrow,' said the convict, "'if you give the word,' Sanderson went on implacably. He not only murdered the son, but for five years has kept the father in an agony of sorrow and apprehension, bleeding him of money all the time, which was the least of his crimes. To-morrow I shall tell my master that his son has been dead these five years, and, heavy as that blow must prove, it will be mitigated by the fact that his son died an honest and honourable man. I thank you for offering to kill this vile criminal. "'I intend that he shall die, but not so quickly or so mercifully.' "'Here he untied the packet, and took from it a photograph which he handed to the convict. "'Do you recognise that?' "'Oh, yes, that's Wyoming Ed as he appeared at the mine, as, indeed, he appeared when he was shot.' "'The photograph Sanderson then handed to me. "'An article that I read about you in the paper, Monsieur Valmont, said you could impersonate anybody.' "'Can you impersonate this young man?' "'There's no difficulty in that,' I replied. "'Then will you do this? "'I wish you too to dress in that fashion. "'I shall give you particulars of the haunts of Major Wren. "'I want you to meet him together and separately as often as you can "'until you drive him mad or to suicide.' "'He believes you to be dead,' said Sanderson, addressing Jack. "'I am certain he has the news by his manner to-night.' He is extremely anxious to get the lump sum of money which I have been holding back from him. You may address him, for he will recognise your voice as well as your person. But Monsieur Valmont had better not speak, as then he might know it was not the voice of my poor young master. I suggest that you meet him first together, always at night. The rest I leave in your hands, Monsieur Valmont. With that the old man rose and left us. Perhaps I should stop this narration here, for I have often wondered if practically I am guilty of manslaughter. We did not meet Major Wren together, but arranged that he should encounter Jack under one lamp-post and me under the next. It was just after midnight, and the streets were practically deserted. The theatre crowds had gone, and the traffic was represented by the last buses and a belated cab now and then. Major Wren came down the steps of his club, and under the first lamp-post, with the light shining full upon him, Jack the convict stepped forth. "'Colonel Jim,' he said, "'Ed and I are waiting for you. There were three in that robbery, and one was a traitor. His dead comrades asked the trader to join them.' The Major staggered back against the lamp-post, drew his hand across his brow, and muttered, Jack told me afterwards, I must stop drinking. I must stop drinking. Then he pulled himself together and walked rapidly toward the next lamp post. I stood out square in front of him, but made no sound. He looked at me with distended eyes, while Jack shouted out in his boisterous voice, that had no doubt often echoed over the plain. "Come on, Wyoming Ed, and never mind him. He must follow." Then he gave a war whoop. The Major did not turn round, but continued to stare at me, breathing stertorously like a person with apoplexy. I slowly pushed back my hat, and on my brow he saw the red mark of a bullet-hole. He threw up his hands and fell with a crash to the pavement. Heart failure was the verdict of the coroner's jury. End of chapter 7